You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Good to see you tonight. We are studying through the book of Judges, if you're visiting. And we're in chapter 19 tonight. Just where we happen to be, as I said, it is going to be a rough chapter. The title of our message is Depravity and Its Final Solution. Depravity and Its Final Solution. And so I hope that even in the title, you guys get the sense that there's hope that God has a solution for sin and and depravity. But most people, including many Christians, tend to think of evil as something that exists outside of themselves. But the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us that sin, which is evil, is actually a mindset that is in us. Even as Christians, even as Christians, evil and sin is in us. James chapter 1 Verse 14 and 15 says this, it's on the screen, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when, he, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So you see there that the temptation can be outside of us. But when we choose to unite our will to that temptation, we bring that sin into us and and it gives birth to greater sin. The sin is not outside of us, but rather it starts inside. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, we read, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We have to put to death our own members. The Bible is talking about the passions of our flesh. And as we come to the end of the book of Judges, we're seeing a society in Judges that is no longer governed by God's law, but by the law of sin. Remember, Paul talked about that in the book of Romans, chapter 7. There was this law of sin that he saw within himself. It was wrestling and fighting against the law of God and and winning the battle, wasn't it? Until he cried out for help and and found that help through Jesus Christ and through the the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 of Romans. But we are seeing what social chaos would look like. We're seeing what social chaos is going to look like when the church of Jesus Christ is raptured and taken up out of the earth. When, the, when, that, when he who restrains is taken away, the book of 2 Thessalonians tells us. That's the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit in? Indwelling? Christians. When the church is gone, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's presence is no longer there. He's He's God. He's talking about the presence of the church, the salt and the light of the earth. We're the ones that are standing for truth and righteousness. We're the ones that are uh, uh, promoting values and good morals. We're the ones in society that are fighting for what is good and right. And when that is all gone, guys, there's nothing left restraining evil at that point. And you're going to see social chaos like you've never seen social chaos if you're an unbeliever here tonight and you're alive in those times. But that's what we see 
in, in, in the book of Judges is what that might look like. What is interesting to us is that the news headlines that we read about today are in many ways the same as what we will be reading about. You see, the actions of society today are not really all that different from what society was like in the times of the book of Judges. But that should motivate us. That shouldn't depress us. It shouldn't get us down. That should motivate us to be living as Christians like never before. Why? Because the world needs us more than ever before. And you know what, guys? If you're living an authentic Christian life and you have a real relationship with Jesus, oh man, you're going to see some amazing things. You're going to see God do amazing things in your life and around us and in this community because the world needs light. The world needs hope. The world needs truth and love like never before. You know, I'm watching this whole confirmation process for, uh, for, the, for, for the Supreme Court position that's opened up. And, and Brett Kavanaugh, the, the, the uh, candidate, what he's going through, right? I mean, it's just crazy. But you see, our society just doesn't really know how to process and handle, you know, this accusation that's been brought forth and where, where we should stand on that and all of these things. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I don't think it's right if it did happen. But it's just an interesting thing to watch all of this being played out. There's so much confusion. There's so much drama. And people are just in turmoil about that. And don't get me wrong, there is a lot riding on that confirmation. We need to be praying as Christians for God's will. But we are seeing a world that is so confused because of darkness and because of sin that so needs a king. Not, not a king in government, not a king in the White House. I'm talking about king in their hearts, King Jesus. So the theme for the book of Judges is found at the end of the book. It's Judges 21, verse 25. It's on the screen there for you. But I want to read it because you need to know it tonight. You need to have it in your mind tonight. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now you're going to need to keep that verse at the forefront of your mind while we read through this dark chapter tonight. There's really no other way to keep your sanity. So with that said, let's pick up our Bibles tonight. We'll follow. You can follow along with me as I'm going to read through chapter 19. I'm going to read all of it tonight. And it's my plan to just uh, come back through it and kind of make some observations uh, there at the end. In those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and to persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed for three days, eating, drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day, the man was up early, ready to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat before you go. Tricky words there. So the two men sat down together and had something to eat and drink. And then the woman's father said, please stay another night and enjoy yourself. 
The man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay. So he finally gave in and stayed the night. Don't you wish you had in-laws like that, guys? I mean, it might be nice, you know. Verse 8, on the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, have something to eat, then you can leave later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Later, the man and his concubine and servant were preparing to leave. His father-in-law said, look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. But this time the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed in the direction of Jebus, that is Jerusalem. It was late in the day as the, when they neared Jebus and the man's servant said to him, let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. No, his master said, we can't stay in this foreign town where there, is no, is, where there are no Israelites. Instead, we'll go on to Gibeah. Come on, let's try to get as far as Gibeah or Ramah, and we'll spend the night in one of those towns. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. Verse 16, that evening an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We've been in Bethlehem and Judah, the man replied. We're on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem and now I'm returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they ate and drank together. And while they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing, for this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. What a brave guy, right? I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. And when he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime. 
has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? There it is. A gruesome, disgusting chapter that causes us to cringe even as we read it, as we realize that yes, this story is in the Holy Bible. This story is in the Holy Bible and it's there for a reason. This is one of the reasons we know that the Bible is a divinely inspired, inerrant book because it does not hide the truth from people. It tells it like it is. In a very vulnerable way, it even opens up about the darkest parts of society and what happens in the darkness of men's hearts. Something that not all religious books are honest enough to do. With that said, though, the theme for the chapter, their chapter 19 tonight, is the guilt of the tribe of Benjamin. That's what chapter 19 is about. Chapter 20, which we'll cover next week, is all about the uh, punishment of the tribe of Benjamin. And then when we get to chapter 21, it's going to be all about the tragedy of the tribe of Benjamin, but it's also going to be about the grace of God. And as I said, we're going to finish those two chapters next week. I was going to try to knock them all out tonight, but I figured I'd split it into two uh, shorter studies, hopefully, and, and just take it like this. But coming back to the story here, looking at verses 1 and 2, I want to point out a couple of things. A, a concubine... Well, let me start with verse 1. First of all, notice in there in verse 1 that the writer again is letting us know what's up. He's letting us know what's going on. There's no king. And where there is no king, there can be no peace. Where there's no king, there can be no uh, uh, direction and godly uh, leadership. Now, a concubine was a second-class wife in those days in Israel. Israel had allowed polygamy in their society, and a concubine could be purchased or acquired as a payment of debt or even taken in war. But what's interesting about this story is this is the only wife of this man, and yet he refers to her as a concubine, or he sees her as a concubine. Now, that's not something that Scripture condones. It's just reporting that this is the reality of this man's life. Now, in verse 2, where it says that she became angry, or depending on what translation you have, it might say in verse 2 that she actually played the harlot with him. That's actually a more accurate translation of what was going on. This concubine played the harlot. She, she was unfaithful to him, and, and she had left and gone back to live with her father. He probably kicked her out or something like that. But he had a change of heart, and he goes to get her back. In verses 3 through 9, the writer is setting forth the hospitality of Bethlehem because he's going to later contrast the, the hospitality of this Levite's father-in-law with the hardness and the stinginess that was in Gibeah. Now the Levite's father-in-law is showing a typical kind of hospitality here. This hospitality was and still is in many places commonly practiced in the Middle Eastern culture. 
In fact, it's considered a very serious thing to invite somebody into your home, to share food with somebody in the Middle Eastern culture. It's a very uh, serious thing. And, and, And when you open that door to your guest, you're making that house like their own. And so he's really being generous, but that's just typical Middle Eastern hospitality there. Then in verses 10 through 13, we see the journey that this Levite was taking. And we, we see there that he was not willing to stop in Jebus, which is Jerusalem, modern day Jerusalem, because it still had not been conquered by the Israelites. It was the Jebusites living there and he wasn't sure what their hospitality was going to be like. But again, the writer's just setting all this up. You see, it's ironic, isn't it, that they're in, in you know, the, this guy saying, in this foreigner's village, I'm not going to find hospitality. He goes to the Benjamites' village, Gibeah. Does he find hospitality there? No. They leave him out in the square. They leave him out in the square, which was not the normal rules of hospitality. Look at there in verse, verses 14 and 15. He gets to the village and he's just sitting there. The normal rules of hospitality in the Near East, and and especially in Israel, would have called for someone from that city to take those strangers in and to offer them a place to stay for the night. They didn't have hotels. There was no Motel 6, you know, where you could go swipe the old plastic and get a a room for the night. So he he had to wait in the square until somebody would offer him a place. And the fact that that did not happen, that's a clue the writer is giving us that there was some social dysfunction That was prevalent at this time. Now, in verses 16 through 21, we see that finally someone comes along. This older man, he's not a Benjamite. He's not from Gibeah. He's actually from the hill country of Ephraim. And he ends up taking the Levite and his concubine into his house. But unfortunately, what started out well for them, you see them celebrating there in verse 21. They're having a good time together. But that good time is ends there in verses 22 through 30. And 22 through 30, those are some of the darkest verses you'll ever read in the Bible. They evoke strong emotions when you read them. Anger, frustration, disgust. And rightly so. Rightly so. The the, the writer wants us to have those emotions. He's drawing them out of the reader as he reports this story as we look in disgust at what is happening in Israel in these days when there is no king. The first observation tonight that I I want to make to you is, is that the writer is very clearly portraying Gibeah as the new Sodom. If you guys remember from Genesis chapter 19, there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, verses 1 through 11 of Genesis chapter 19. Well, interestingly enough, Judges chapter 19 is using the same language and depicting the town of Gibeah in the same light as the story there in in, uh, Genesis chapter 19. He uses a lot of the same phrases. And what he's doing is showing us the moral degradation now of Israel. He's taking pains to point out to us that it is now Israel... Not the Gentiles of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the the Israelites now who have reached a level of depravity that is the same, if not worse, than Sodom. Now, unfortunately for the concubine, there were no heavenly angels there to strike down the townsmen with blindness, 
Remember, that was what was happened in Genesis 19. The two angels, they blinded those townspeople in Sodom so that they couldn't even find the door, and they wore themselves out, the text says, from trying to find their way in. They were still not giving up. They were so, they were so rebellious. They were still looking. But here in this story, unfortunately, it doesn't turn out that way. Instead, we see these homosexual men using and abusing this concubine all through the night. And notice the tragic descriptive language there in verse 27. says that she lay with her hands outstretched on the front steps of the house. That's how he finds her in the morning. And she's died at that point. Now this is where I want to take a minute just to point out to you both the callousness and the cowardice of the Levite. The writer is taking great pains to describe things in this light so that we will understand that this man, he's in the depths of depravity. Not only the villagers, not only the town of Gibeah, but also this Levite man, and also the society of Israel. In verse 28, we see the callousness of this man's heart. He simply tells her to get up. The man who wouldn't fight for her, wouldn't stick up for her. The man who took her and thrust her outside into their arms and said, here, take her instead. What kind of a man was this? We know that that's not God's heart. We know that God has raised up husbands, men, to be protectors of our families. That's our role as men. We're to sacrifice our lives, if need be, for the the well-being of our our wives and our children. But rather than do that, man, this guy, he's a total coward. And not only coward, he's so hard in his heart, he comes outside the next day. He sees her laying on the ground with her hands outstretched for the door. And he says, get up. Get up. It's time to go. What kind of a man is this? From perversity to abuse to homosexuality. We we see men controlled by lust. We see a a cowardly husband who won't stand up for his wife. We see a father who has no courage. He has no sense offering his virgin daughter in place of uh, of the guest in his house. What kind of a father is that? So we ask ourselves some tough questions. Where is the light of God's truth? Where are God's laws, God's commands? Where is the love for what is right? Listen, guys, all of this, all of this has, been, has come about because of the theme of the book of Judges, because there are men who are living by their own standard. Men who have decided to reject God's light, reject God's truth, reject God's love. And in place of those things, they have set up their own standard of what it means to do right. They have declared what is right and what is wrong, and because of that, they find themselves in a dark place, a place of confusion, a place of depravity. And that brings me to the interpretation of this chapter tonight. The interpretation that the writer is giving to us, the lesson here is that doing what is right in your own eyes will only lead you into further depravity. If if you insist on doing what is right in your own eyes, God will give you over, in a sense, to the consequences of that sin. 
Now, pray, pray that the Lord allows that to be what wakes you up. So that like the prodigal son, you wake up and you run back home to the Father because you realize that's where you're supposed to be. But this is what the writer of, the ju- of Judges is leading us to see. It isn't individual sins that are necessarily the biggest problem. Yes, an individual sin will lead you into sin if you continue in that, right? We know that. But the, but the big problem here is the ultimate sin of declaring themselves to be independent from God. It is the sin of rejecting God and deciding on our own what is going to be right and what is going to be wrong. When we take that from God and we say, God, you're, you're no longer the one that decides what's right and wrong, but rather I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. Man, there's this fundamental shift in the way that you begin to see life. And instead of it being about God and worshiping the Creator, you begin to worship creation. You worship self, humanism, secularism. And society becomes inward focused and it's about me and about getting what I want instead of about worshiping. You know that uh, the Bible teaches that whatever you worship, you slowly become like it. You slowly, be, you slowly become molded and shaped into the image of that which you are worshiping. And so if, if we're worshiping anything besides God, man, we're not being conformed into the image of God. We're being conformed into the image of, of that which we worship. And that's scary. So what's the application for us tonight in this passage? Well, the application is a question. And the question is, are we, like the Israelites, guilty of living by our own standard of righteousness? You see, this is where we need to dig down deep into our own souls, church. We need to realize something. The text says that every man did whatever was right in his own eyes or whatever seemed right to him. But let's remember, the text is talking about men who were Israelites. They were partakers of the covenant. They were supposedly the people of God. You know, sometimes we have to do some digging to find the problems. Sometimes we have to do some introspection. Sometimes we have to dig down deep to expose the root of our own sin. I once read about how in Germany in World War II, there were about 3,000 German soldiers who infiltrated the American soldiers' lines in 1944. They were Germans who spoke English They had American ID cards. They had American swear words, American cigarettes. They had dollars in their pockets. They even had letters. And they had pictures of supposed loved ones. And the German army sent these spies to wreak havoc and to create confusion and and to spy, to send word on the troop movements of the American soldiers. And so these guys, they had stolen several Jeeps. They were driving around in American Jeeps. They were observing church uh, troop movements. They had intercepted communications. They were cutting some of the communication lines behind the, the lines. They changed highway signs around so that the troops from America got lost. They were going to places that, that weren't really the place that was named on the sign. 
So a lot of the American soldiers got confused. They got lost. They even took warning signs off of some of the existing minefields that had already been marked. You know, you had the, the American soldiers had already kind of marked the minefields. They came through and took all those signs out so that they didn't know they were there. Finally, the Americans kind of wised up and they realized that there were some spies just wreaking havoc there behind the lines. And so they began to uh, root them out. They began to hunt them. And they set it up so that their road check stations couldn't just accept simple passwords anymore or simple ID cards anymore. They began to ask more complicated questions. They did some digging, in other words. They would ask questions like, where's the Windy City located? Or they would order the Americans at the checkpoint to say the word reef because the Germans, you see, they couldn't pronounce the TH sound. They would say reet, you know, reet, and they would know if we got you. We got you there. They would often fail that test. And it's told that in one case, there was a Jeep with two American Army lieutenants, two second lieutenants. They were parked up on a hill. They were watching some American troops who were marching below them, moving into a position. And they got approached by a couple of counterintelligence agents who began to question them. These American second lieutenants, they produced dog tags, American IDs, even detailed stories about their training, their experiences in the army, and they claimed that they had trained at Camp Hood, which we all know is right here in Texas. However, when they finished, one of the agents very cleverly asked them, so have you guys ever been in Texas? Nope, never been in Texas, they said. Bam, they knew they had themselves a couple of spies. What's my point in telling you guys that story? Well, sometimes things can look good on the outside. Everything can look squared away from the surface, but when you begin to dig down, you find the enemy. Whether it's a raunchy sin that disgusts us, like the one here in Judges chapter 19, or whether it's a sin that looks good on the outside and you can disguise it and you can make it look good and you can hide it. It has the same source. The source is inside of us. Mark chapter 7. Oh, really quickly, I wanted to show you guys a picture from that story. Uh, These are German soldiers who had been captured in American soldiers' uniforms at the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, they were being prepared uh, for justice right there in that photo. So interesting little side note there. But I wanted to say that Mark chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles tonight and you just would flip to Mark chapter 7 with me, I want to talk about that source one more time. Jesus very clearly shows us. In chapter 7, he's teaching about inner purity. And and he says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. I want to read it with you. He says, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Again, Guys, the Bible teaches us that sin is, does not have an outside source. 
We can't blame others for our sin. We can't blame circumstances or environment or the way we were raised. We can't blame anything else for our sin. Jesus makes it clear, you are responsible for your sin. I am responsible for my sin. It comes from inside of us. Each man, back in Judges 19, was doing whatever seemed right in his own eyes. What a good word for the church today. To check our own hearts. You see, we will look at our world. We will watch the news. We'll read about what's happening. We'll hear about our neighbor. And we'll express outrage over it. We'll express disgust. We'll express a a heart of surprise or feigned surprise and outrage, just like the Israelites did in verse 30 of Judges chapter 19. But then you know what? We'll go right back to our own pet sins. We'll go right back to our own form of sin that feels comfortable and good to us. We'll go right back to justifying what we're doing. As long as God doesn't get into all of my business, I'm good. As long as He doesn't ask me to give up this one thing, I'm comfortable. As long as His sovereignty doesn't include this one area of my life that's mine, we're good. We'll get along just fine. Do you share in the sin of having a stubborn and prideful heart that is set on doing what is right in your own eyes? Do you share in the perversity and rebellion of the Israelites who said, you know what, God? You're not the one who decides what's right and wrong for my life. Rather, I do. And I'm going to manipulate it and torque it and you know, make it what I want it to be. It's a dangerous place to be, guys. So what's the conclusion tonight? Well, I'm going to say that if we want to have a lasting change in our own lives, if we're going to dig down and and find things and deal with things, then what do we need to do? Well, number one, we need to learn to admit how sinful we are. And this is one of the hardest things to do. If we're honest, none of us likes to admit how sinful we are. I don't like to. I, I, I bristle up. What? No. I, I defend. I don't want to admit how sinful I am. But listen, that kind of an attitude, if, if I'm not willing to admit how, kind of, how sinful I am, that's just pride. It's just me not, not coming to the Lord and realizing how good He is and how awesome His grace is. It's me still trusting in my own flesh. And that's the second thing there, is that we need to learn to avoid trusting in our own flesh and trying to appear to be holy. Guys, this is a trap that Satan sets for so many within the church. So many within the church going around trying to act like you've got it together, like you're you're not a sinner, like you're not somebody that needs any help or needs the Lord or needs the Bible or any of those things. But listen, we need to avoid that. That's just trusting in our own flesh. It's not, and it's an inaccurate understanding of who God is as well. We think that we have to be right so that God will accept us. That's not our God. And that brings me to the third point there. We need to find our identity in Christ alone. You've got to get to a place where you understand that it's, it's about 
what God says about you and who you are, or it's about who your flesh is trying to say and who the enemy is trying to say and who the world is trying to say you are. There's that constant battle going on. The world, your flesh, the enemy, they're all condemning you. They're all trying to put you down and trying to tell you who you are. And then you've got God going, oh, my son, oh, my daughter, if you only knew how much I love you. Oh, I paid it all. I paid the price. I I died for those sins. You're not surprising me. I see you, you little stinker. I see you there, and I still love you. But you got to find your identity in Christ to understand that. And then four, we need to learn to convict ourselves with the joy of Christ. You see, it's the joy of Christ that changes a person's life. It's the grace of God experienced through the joy in a relationship with Christ that causes us to change. What does that mean? It simply means that instead of condemning ourselves over sin, instead of beating ourselves up, we need to put the focus on Jesus. We, we, we change, guys, as we put the focus on Jesus and not on us. As we see Him and we look to Him and we begin to worship Him and we begin to realize it is a relationship with Him that changes our lives. The joy of Christ is that He loves me in spite of my sin and shortcomings and failures. His love is not conditioned on your actions or your choices. If you can understand that, you'll be blown away. I, I don't fully understand it. still blows me away. But I don't fully understand that. But that's the truth. That's what the Word of God teaches us. Now, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you love Him. And the more you know how awesome He is, the more you want to please Him. The more you love Him, the more you, you begin to be convicted not condemned, but convicted, and you, you really want to change. And you really go, Lord, I really want to do this for you. And I'm secure because I know you don't, you're not kicking me out because I keep failing and I'm, I'm messing up. You love me in spite of my failures. You love me in spite of the poor choices I make. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go on sinning willfully against your will. No. Heaven forbid, Paul said. No, but rather your love for me, it blows me away. It puts me in a secure place and it causes me to rejoice in you and to want to change. The cross is really the ultimate act of God's love for us, church. The key to overcoming sin issues, even habitual sin issues, addictions and those sorts of things, it's all found in thinking about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. The devil comes to condemn and to drive us away from the Lord. However, Jesus' love convicts us and it guides us into changing our minds about sin. He he leads us to show us, wow, this is really destroying your life. It's really not good for you. I've really got something so much better for you. And I'm going to get you through it. You cling to me, we'll work on this together, we're going to get through it. And you're going to overcome because I'm your Lord. This is the power that changes lives, you guys. It is the only true religion that has the power to transform, the power to change. And it's found in Jesus. Let's pray.